welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important issues facing Canadians across business, finance, tech, and the economy. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scotland. And I'm Sarah Bartnika. Taylor, it seems like everyone's calling it. This is the breakout year for AI, artificial intelligence. It certainly seems to be. I don't know if you've had a chance to play around with any of these tools like ChatGPT or Stable Diffusion. There's a bunch of them now. But the stuff you can generate is is pretty mind-blowing. You know what? No, I haven't because as a newsletter writer, uh, I feel like those tools are making me a little too uh, anxious uh, to, to, to fully yeah. uh, enjoy playing around with them, honestly. It is worrying uh, to some degree as as writers. But, uh, you know, I will say it's not up to the standard that we hold ourselves to here at the peak yet. It, uh, I don't think it's quite capable of, of replacing our jobs. But if you want to get, you know, instructions for making a lemon pound cake or something, uh, it does seem to do a pretty good job. Yeah, well, it's it's definitely the thing that everyone's talking about. And ChatGPT is just one one tiny aspect of this massive field of research that has been kind of going on for, I think, 60 plus years, you know, whenever computers were invented. So today we're going to kind of look under the hood of the industry, kind of figure out how we got to this point, what the landscape looks like in Canada. And we have the perfect guest on today to talk about all of these things. Ryan Karana is the chief of staff at Wombo, a generative AI entertainment company. His app called Dream won the Play Store app of the year in 2022. And prior to joining Wombo, he worked in various policy roles where he published widely on the impact of AI and the economy. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on Free Lunch. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So it seems like we're seeing a lot of big advances in AI recently with all sorts of kind of tools. Um, you know, most notably, you know, ChatGPT has taken over the internet by storm. Um, can you take us back a little bit? Because when you think about artificial intelligence, I mean, the field and the research within it has really been around since, you know, since the invention of, of computers. So can you kind of walk us through where we are today and, and how we've kind of gotten to this place. Sure. Yes. I think the field kicked off with, uh, you know, Alan Turing during the war uh, and the famous like, imitation game, which is where we get the idea of a Turing test. Can a computer fool you into thinking it's human? Uh, in the 50s, there was a lot of interest in something called symbolic AI. Um, so some of the early pioneers in the field developed an algorithm that allowed people to compete against the computer in tic-tac-toe. And this was like a huge accomplishment at the time. And they were convinced that, you know, by the seventies, we would have computers beating humans at everything. Uh, it turned out to be extremely expensive and hard to do that. And actually what happened in by the seventies, people lost interest. Uh, and the field had what was called the first AI winter. Um, about a decade later, there was the rise in something called expert systems, which essentially tried to encode all of human knowledge. Um, the logic was that what a, what a human does, like a doctor, is follows a set of rules. It knows if it sees this, then this is the result. And we can code all of that into the, the algorithm, and therefore it will perform at human capacity and all these things. That actually did lead to a lot of advances in computing and, and, and it's the legacy is still there, but it failed as a, a message 
of developing artificial intelligence. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of things that just aren't rules. So for, for decades after that, not much progress was made. Um, but in 2012, a paper was published out of the University of Toronto called AlexNet, uh, which showed that computers could be pretty good at finding objects and images and telling you what they were. Uh, and a couple of years after that, they were better than humans at labeling objects and images and telling you what, what was in the image. And that was powered by um, a concept called a neural network, which instead of saying all of these rules about knowledge or these kinds of formulas, you would just feed it a lot of data, tell it when you see this, right? Like this is what an image of a cat looks like. I'll give it hundreds of thousands of examples uh, and just have the system learn, this machine learning. Um, and while that concept was around for a while, it only proved useful in the 2010s because it needed a lot of data and the internet supplied that data. Uh, it wasn't as accessible beforehand. And it needed a lot of computing power. Computers were obviously much more expensive, but one of the big changes in the 2000s was the development of something called the GPU, the graphics processing unit, which was originally made for like video games to make graphics look cool, but it made computers way more powerful. Uh, and it allowed this new type of technology to come out. And over the last decade, that specific approach, this neural network approach to artificial intelligence has proved vastly more powerful than each previous generation. Um, and every year, and getting speeding up to like the level of every couple of months, we have a big breakthrough in France, which shows that, you know, the number of fields and the number of tasks that can be just filtered in through large data sets and trained for an AI to do is increasing. Um, and so we've yet to exhaust anywhere near the potential of this new form of AI. So at what point did artificial intelligence start to outpace human problem-solving capabilities? And if you look at the problems that they're able to solve, I mean, what is the distinction now between what an AI is good at and what humans are good at? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's like broad problem-solving, right? Like the, as I mentioned, back in the 50s, we had an algorithm to beat us at tic-tac-toe that expert systems in the 80s was what led to uh, IBM creating a chess grandmaster that famously beat Gary Kasparov. And they used that same approach to create Watson, which won Jeopardy. Um, so there were always these tasks that we knew we could automate. Computers are really good at computation. Um, what we're discovering now is a lot more things are computational tasks. Like a, it would be hard to explain to someone a while ago that driving is a computational task that a computer could do well. Um, but now we're seeing self-driving cars be fairly good. Like Tesla's autopilot is fairly good in a lot of situations. Um, one framework that I really like that's helpful to figure this out is uh, from a book called Prediction Machines, which was written by professors at Rotman uh, in Toronto. And it argues that what an AI does is fundamentally predict what's next. And so if there's any task that we can think of that's taking a set of data and telling you what the next move is. And so generating text is often like that. All right, I read the last paragraph. What do I expect to happen next? Driving is like that. I'm going to a destination. 
where, what do I do? Where do I make the next turn? Uh, oh, this car stopped in front of me. What do I do? I stop. These predictions are, are something computers are really good at. So when tasks can be framed as predictions, we can make it possible for computers to do it well. Was there a breakthrough technologically of some sort beyond the factors that you already mentioned of increasing processing capacity and the availability of so much data through the internet? Was there any other technological breakthroughs that enabled the recent crop, I guess, of AI-powered tools? Because they seem to me to be you know, so much more powerful uh, than anything that was around even a year or two ago. Yeah, so the breakthrough actually happened about five years ago. Uh, there was a paper out of Google called Attention is All You Need, which developed a new type of neural network called the Transformer. And what the Transformer essentially did was make it easier for AIs to read tons of data and process it. Um, and so while these, like even before, the more data you had, the more computing power you had, you were going to be able to do more. By making it easier for it to process tons of data, it actually made it feasible to um, digest unbelievably massive corpus of data. So this, this paper led to OpenAI's GPT, um, for example, because now it went from, I curate a large data set and I have to spend a ton of money to get the algorithm to process it and learn from it to their approach of they essentially downloaded the whole of the internet, all of the text that they could find on things like Wikipedia and Reddit and whatnot. And you just took all of that text and you dumped it into the model and you had to read all of it and try to make sense of it. And that's how it learned. And so that, that technological piece where it made it feasible to just you know dump all of that data in not a lot of manual labor required of pre-filtering and processing it um, really did help scale up the use of AI and the speed at which things could be done. Uh, this may seem like a, a dumb question because I'm approaching this from a very low level of information. <clears throat> but how does that actually work? Like, what are the mechanics of that? If you take, you know, a thousand pictures of Baroque paintings and dump it into <laughs> an AI. Uh, without giving it further information, how does it then learn what those are and can then output an image in the style of a Baroque painting? Like, what are the mechanics behind that? So, so for the image section, that's a there's different approaches, but a simple way of it is just like you still need a label on that image that you're feeding in that training gym. So, I feed in a Baroque image and I have a description. Um, and the internet has actually made it much easier to find those descriptions, mm. right? Because images have labels on them. Uh, they'll have all this metadata associated with them. And I feed all of that. In, and it learns those associations. And so if I have a hundred distinct examples of a Baroque painting, and it all says Baroque on them, there is something. And like the human being intuitively knows, like, oh, I can recognize those painting styles, mm-hmm. uh, the use of lighting and whatever. But now the AI, which doesn't really have that kind of human level uh, description ability, sees and it's like, right, this is the pattern in there. It's always associated with this word. So that's the thing this word means. And whenever I see a text uh, fed into me with that word, I'm going to try to mimic that style. Um, and this is one of the reasons why, you know, having that larger data set also helps create the uniqueness of AI generated art, where 
if it was only, you know, 10 Baroque images, it probably spit out something that looked exactly like those every time. Um, but because it's so vast and there's subtle differences in each, there is a variation that leads to novelty in the output. So are there limitations with these, like, are there limitations that arise with these descriptions when it comes to generating an image, I guess, specifically for generative AI? So generating an image or generating text, is there um, limitations when it comes to quality or usefulness or anything like that that arises and downfalls, right? If maybe tags aren't categorized properly. Uh, yeah. So the, the, the data set curation is actually the really important part there. Um, so there's a few big initiatives that help with that. So one for text stuff is called common crawl. Um, and it helps, you know, people prepare those data sets of the entirety of the internet in a way that's going to be more useful for training an AI and having it learn. Uh, and then for images, it's the biggest one is called Leon, L-A-I-O-N. And they do something similar. Um, and there's a degree of control you have there. So for example, um, if you want to protect an artist's IP and you're like, I don't want people to just type in Banksy and get things that look Banksy like every time. I can remove from the training data all the references to Banksy in Banksy art. So it's like remove name. It'll have all the other descriptors, but it won't have name. And as a result, if I type in that artist's name from a model trained on that, I won't be able to mimic their style. And so that degree of control and flexibility is a very important aspect of developing, uh, you know, products that fit within your goal. Sometimes you would want something that's really, uh, niche trained. So this is a thing that's important for companies that use GPT for language. So for example, you're a medical company and you want it to really understand uh, medical texts. The use of words in medicine, they might be the same word, but they have a different context meaning. So what you do then is you subset the data. You make sure that all of the, the, the data that's used there is definitely a medical context so it doesn't get misinterpreted in some other ways. And that helps make sure you get your use case. So these are ways to make sure that what, what you're doing always kind of leads into that use case. When it comes to limitations, um, the limitations are a lot about, you know, what's, what do you have access to? There's tons of text that we've created that hasn't been digitized yet, right? There's tons of artworks that aren't well digitized. Um, some things that people care about that might be more niche may not have enough examples out there. So those are where the limitations kind of are. And, you know, as the internet continues to, <laughs> to generate content, people continue to make more stuff, uh, we'll get around those. So is it too simplified to look at this as you know, the progress in this field really coming down to high quality data sets plus computing power? I, I don't think that's too simplified at all. Um, if we look at it from a stack, right, there's, there's various components that are very important to get a final product out. Um, and when it comes to computing power, part of that is just having better quality uh, processing. So like 
NVIDIA and AMD work to push chips further. And as they make things better, uh, making better AIs is possible. But also, you need to know how to run these models on that computing. So things like Amazon Web Service and Azure have been really critical in making that accessible uh, and possible to do. Um, and now there's a lot of you know more niche GPU-specific uh, companies that do that cloud stuff, but specifically catered towards AI, and that helps a lot as well. Um, but then you have to also learn stuff about model management. So um, if I tried to replicate what OpenAI did, which I fed a bunch of uh, data into a model on tons of computers, and I did not have the knowledge of how to track those experiments uh, and make sure that they, I was recording the right data, I would probably waste a lot more money. Eventually, I might, might get to where they are, but there's a competitiveness on how well can you uh, do this without burning all of your cash first, because this stuff is quite expensive. And then on the other side, as you mentioned, you know, the data is quite important, making better data sets, uh, making the internet more accessible for people to use for experimentation, all of that stuff is quite critical. What are the costs uh, like associated with this? So, you know, if I put a prompt into ChatGPT, uh, how much does that cost? Or maybe a better example is with Wombo. If I, uh, with your company, use that to generate uh, an image, what what are the expenses associated with that? The largest expense is the direct cost of compute. Um, so training the models is, is more expensive. You need higher end GPUs, um, and you need to process like tons of data. So that's, that's like a fixed upfront cost. And now when the model gets good enough for you to use, where you just type in text and generate something, um, the cost there is every one of those, uh, generations has to be processed on a pretty good GPU. And the quality of the GPU we purchase determines the speed of what you'll experience. Um, also there's some, you know, obviously I'm not going to underplay the technical work. A team does a, a lot of work on optimizing the models that they run quickly, but you can get a, a big quality difference from a model that runs quickly to one that runs slowly. So if our model was slower and it took over a minute to create your artwork, we're paying for over a minute of GPU time, which could be anywhere between like five and six cents. Uh, but if we get it to run at three seconds, it's like under a penny. And getting it to run for under a penny means we can support the several million a day that we make for people and it's not bankrupting. But if it took five, six cents each time, that adds up really quickly. Uh, you mentioned OpenAI a couple of times, and um, I just want to get a sense of what is the landscape of AI like right now? Like who are the key players? Because all this technology seems to kind of come out of nowhere. I don't know who's behind any of it. Um, and I assume someone is monetizing it somewhere. Who are the people and products that people should know about to get a sense of the space? Yeah, so at the, at the top is actually all of the people you would suspect. The biggest players are the, the Metas, the Googles, uh, the Microsoft, um, I would of say course. that, yeah, without a doubt, the most successful AI product of the last decade was TikTok. Uh, mm. TikTok is undeniably an AI product, and it, it uses the AI to recommend you what to see next. And the reason why people stay on TikTok for hours is because it does a really good job 
of okay, making sure the next thing you see is like what you want to see. Um, and that's by no means a, a, a simple feat. Um, and so that's like, so there, that's where you see AI the most like recommendation has been a big driver of a lot of the internet economy, right? Like Netflix has a big AI prize that they, they give to, to, to generate uh, better recommender systems. Uh, it's the reason why like Instagram and Facebook work way differently than when they did like 15 years ago and you just saw sequentially what your friends posted. Um, so they're, they're the big players. Uh, you get a lot of um, research labs. So the, the biggest names there um, are DeepMind, which is now owned by Google, uh, OpenAI, which has uh, you know, quite a strong Microsoft affiliation, um, and Cohere, which is a Canadian company founded by one of the uh, authors of the Transformers paper I mentioned earlier that kind of kicked off this revolution. Um, and they're in the uh, relationship with Google as well. So at, at, at deep down, uh, even all of these research labs do have strong affiliations with the big tech goes. So they're the real key players in all of it. Interesting. Interesting. And are those proprietary systems, like does Google basically own its own technology for this and Meta has its own technology and Microsoft has its own, or are they all working from some common framework? Um, so I think they have open sourced a ton of the things that they've made. Um, Facebook and Google are both behind the two largest um, AI coding libraries. So most machine learning models are built in Python. And to speed it up, you get these packages, either TensorFlow or PyTorch. And both of them were developed at, what? well, TensorFlow was developed out of Google and PyTorch was developed out of uh, Meta. And those companies invest a lot to keep those up and running. Uh, and they open source a lot of their models. Like they will tell you how they work and make it easier for you to use the stuff that they make. Um, and that's actually strategically quite useful for them. Like if they, if they're developing at the end of the day, they're, they're product companies. They're not making their money off doing cool tech. They're making their money off building better products. And by putting out into the world, a lot of the research that they do, they're encouraging other people to create cool products with it and give them feedback on whether they're on the right track, whether that works or not. Um, and that leads to a lot of benefits for them down the line as well. Um, you know, it's like an approach like Microsoft used uh, when it was rising to power. That it Microsoft was had Windows, Office, these software products that were like really important and did a lot to make buying computers easier, made it cheaper for uh, companies to like they they open sourced a lot of information so that you know anyone could enter the hardware market. Um, because it was, if more people had computers, more people will use Microsoft products. <laughs> so it's a huge incentive for us to make that cheaper and better and not even like take a cut on that part of the business. Uh, and so there's a similar, similar trend in AI today. So how are these companies then actually applying AI? Like where do they draw the line in terms of, you know, the news that came out, you know, a couple weeks ago, as far as, you know, Google saying that they've kind of been sitting on the 
AI technology that powers something like ChatGPT. They just don't use it because there's too much kind of reputational risk involved. So when you look at all the research that, you know, a Google or a Meta are doing, how much of it are they actively kind of using in their products and how much of it is still in the research phase? Well, yeah, I can't, uh, like, it's hard to tell how much is in the research phase. Like, they probably have a lot going mm-hmm. on uh, that's outside the public eye, but the, the, they use it everywhere. Um, you open any of their products and you're first see something. Um, and whatever you see was deliberately chosen to get engagement from you. Um, when you make a Google search, there, there's their classical algorithm that was, you know, the, that indexed the internet and it was like, great. But there's also little blurbs they have now at the top where you answer, ask a question and they'll just give you the answer without leading you to a link. Uh, and that answer requires a lot of AI to kind of scour, scour through the pages, try to interpret what the question was and summarize you the answer to make it more convenient. Um, and think of, you know, if you have an iPhone or an Android phone and you go to the photos app, it automatically groups it by the people in the photos for you. Like I, I can identify who is in the photo. Like I have a cat and I can go into my phone and type in cat and it'll pull up all the photos of my cat. (laughs) Right. Like, and stuff like that is very much AI powered because I never, you know, labeled that object myself. It just knows that this is a photo that contains a cat. I'm going to group those all together, make it more convenient for you. And all of these features really just, they're, they're so hidden because they're conveniences to products that they have. But those conveniences do lead to a lot more engagement and usefulness for the product. Yeah, I was looking for a photo of my birth certificate the other day, and I was shocked to find that I could search it in my own images. So wow. that's a good example of that. It was it was freaky. It was. Um, so Ryan, between breaking German encrypted messages during World War II and something like TikTok, I mean, what are the real use applications of AI um, right now in terms of what you see the most impact uh, in terms of like industries and sectors in the short term? So one of the places with the highest adoption, I would say, is in the finance space um, because there are certain problems that lend themselves really well uh, to AI. Uh, one of the, the the most clear ones, and I think this was kind of the most early adopted use case, was for fraud detection um, because AI models are really good at kind of the way that it's good at identifying something in a photo. It's really good at identifying something that's an anomaly or weird. Um, and fraud detection is a really important thing for banks. And so they're constantly investing in what's the best for it. So that's that's a space where you already see a lot of adoption and improving um, mechanics. When it comes to like the broader economy, there are a lot of barriers and spaces where AI could be adopted well. Um, so there's another book written by the same authors from Rotman that did prediction machines called Power and Prediction that they just published recently. Um, and that was in response to them asking, wait, well, the AIs, uh, we've seen so much progress in the last five years, but we've seen much less adoption than we anticipated. And, and they're trying to answer the question of why that's the case. And the analogy used there, and it's, it's one that I, I'm quite fond of, is electricity took about 30 years before anyone really knew what to do with it. 
Um, because sure, it's an amazing new technology, but you have to actually understand where the radical potential for it would be. Um, and with AI right now, like fraud detection, I can totally understand. It is a problem that always wanted to be an AI problem, and they just didn't have the tech to do it. But a lot of things that would improve with this, people aren't thinking in terms of those problems. They're just plugging it in. Like when I think of what do you want to watch next on TikTok, that naturally seems like an AI problem. That's how they built their product. Um, but things like disease diagnosis, which is something that I think would work really well with uh, models we have today, because that is like the, what is, what is your primary care physician do? You ask to your symptoms, looks at you, gets a bunch of information about you and uses that information to make a prediction. What's the likelihood you have X or Y problem? That seems like a natural AI problem to me, but there's a recent, the healthcare system doesn't just adopt that initially uh, because, you know, there's regulatory constraints. There's a process of doing things. There's a lot of liabilities involved, et cetera, et cetera. So the barrier to adoption is much higher. Um, and the like evangelism almost to explain the value add is much higher, but that's a space. I think, for example, that there would be a lot of returns using that Health- healthcare is one where there's, there's so many, uh, little barriers that have to do with the speed of predicting something. And so it would be a natural place to use AI to improve. I noticed that you're using the word prediction a lot. And it's really interesting because in the book, Power and Prediction that you just mentioned, I haven't read it, but I've read a really good summary of it where they uh, unpack, I think, decision-making in two components, which is the prediction and the judgment. And so I wonder if you could talk about those two pieces and prediction, of course, being the thing that we can outsource and then judgment kind of remaining with 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 humans. And then in terms of looking uh, further out in terms of the real world applications, how will prediction and judgment play out and, you know, tell us how this technology is going to be adopted in future industries when we start to talk about, you know, just wider spread adoption? Yeah. So there's a the, the important thing there is just because a prediction is likely to be true right now doesn't mean it's always likely to be true. And that's where the judgment component comes in. Um, I, I, I can come up with like a convoluted example. So let's say you're predicting you want to give um, a loan to somebody. And so you have to judge their credit worthiness, like make a decision. Are they credit worthy or not? Uh, and there's, there's a component of that, which is I get all the information about them and I predict whether they'll default or not. Um, but when you make the decision to give them the loan, the, what also matters in addition to just that likelihood is the reason that that likelihood is the case. Um, and so let's say you have an AI, it takes this, all of these information people and it discovers that people that use iPhones default far less. So if the person has an iPhone, give them the loan. And if they don't, don't give them the loan. There may be a statistical reason that it comes to that conclusion. People with iPhones tend to have extra wide trait that we didn't ask about, but they're always associated. But you don't know that as the person making the loan. And so you don't want to make it, if that's the reason, that's like not the reason you would want to choose. Um, and it's also that reason would be easy to gain. If I discover that, oh, the likelihood of my loan increases when I just buy an iPhone, people will buy iPhones and that, that relationship will break down. 
Um, and so that judgment component is out there. That's understanding the causal relationships. It's understanding like the business context and the decisions that are beyond just pure statistical likelihood. Um, so there are tons of kind of high risk decisions where, you know, likelihood matters, but the reputational harm or the harm to human livelihood or all these things are so high that the 5% error rate is unacceptable. Um, but there's a ton of low risk decisions. Like what do you see next on TikTok? Mm-hmm. Where if it, it doesn't really matter the reason why, uh, if it's 95% good, I don't need to know why it's 95% good. It just is. And so I don't need to make a decision about it. And tons of things we do in our daily life are like that. And so those things have easier adoption where the decision component isn't like high risk. And therefore, I don't really need to exercise judgment a lot. But one of the reasons why self-driving cars are slower is obviously the risk of an accident is very high. Um, And human judgment plays into this a lot. Like you have sometimes an accident is unavoidable, but you have to make a judgment call of like, what do I think is the way that's going to minimize it the most? And there's like a, there's an important aspect to that of like what action do you take, um, and you know the cold calculus of a computer is probably not what we would expect to be like the most moral action. Uh, I've made most of my career through writing stuff. So when I saw Chat GPT, it was with mixed emotions because on one hand it's very cool that I can produce that. On the other hand, it's a little bit terrifying, uh, given that it's, you know, one of many iterations to come, which, uh, will probably just get better and better. Where do you see the potential for the most damaging disruption in, uh, the broader economic sense, labor market sense, uh, with the AI technology that we have maybe over the next four or five years or so? So um, I would say that it's pretty much uh, going to be in the, the, the middle-skilled section of the economy. So when you were saying uh, you, you're scared because you know it's, it's improving a lot, and as a writer, it can write at human quality. Um, but if your writing was such that it was just regurgitating information in a way that's appealing, sure that that looks like that but if it's if there's like a flair to it it's hard to mimic that like that actual quality writing that someone has um it it can imitate close to that but there's 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 a unique skill that like some of the best writers have that really conveys them and their corpus uh and you can always tell that they're the ones writing it um and that's that's hard to replace so i do agree that you know at, at some level if the if it was just I've put out information in a way that's digestible, this can do that well. And that, and there's probably a lot of writing jobs that are like that. But it's not like a great journalist is not doing that. Um, and so it's the same with most jobs and careers. Like here, there's a large swath of the knowledge economy which is just processing and regurgitating information for people. Um, the people at really high level executive positions that have to make risky bets. And really predict like um, like what's the best course of action for the company and juggle all these versions. That's hard to automate. There's like an intuition, life experience, all that stuff that makes them good at that that decision making. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, 
you have a ton of, you know, manual labor jobs uh, or jobs that are just like human intuitive. Like I haven't seen a a computer that can repair a car like a car mechanic can because there's a lot of little moving parts and we're not good at developing like, you know, these very dynamic robots yet. Mm. Um, So that's still a perfectly human thing. This like, I know how to do it with my hands, intuition, like it's obvious to me. Um, there's, there's like a paradox in, in, uh, AI research, which is called Moravec's paradox, which is essentially saying that, uh, the more intellectual the task, the easier it is to teach a computer to do, uh, which is the opposite of what like we as humans think we think, you know, like a, a a handheld task is, is easy. Like grappling with complex mathematics is hard. Um, but for, for an AI, it's the exact opposite. And so the, the jobs uh, jo- are just that, right? That are pure intellectual labor, but not really, there's no real kind of physical or judgment or, you know, intuition component to them are far more at risk. And I think that's a lot of like middle of middle-class knowledge economy jobs. Interesting. And I guess for the people who are, uh, less affected does this become a a big productivity enhancing technology like for the mechanic is ai is there a role for ai in boosting the productivity of of the jobs that humans still are better suited to do well i think that's that that would be the only real appeal right like if it didn't make people's lives easier um it probably wouldn't make a lot of money uh, I, 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 a great example of this, uh, it's just a technology is the ATM. Uh, and this is, uh, I think the ATM is a great way to frame like how jobs are affected as well. Bank tellers used to be spending almost all of their day counting cash and updating balance books. Like this was the norm in the fifties and sixties. And I've still seen my grandma have these like little books that they had to stamp and give her like how much money was left in her account after that. Um, and that seems like a time consuming process. And people were in bank slides for like hours to get their own money out and get this book updated. And then the ATM comes out. And night, if you were like just naively saying, like, oh, the bank teller spends 95% of their day counting cash and updating a book, this machine does their job. Um, so they're not needed anymore. But actually, we have far more bank tellers now than ever before. Is that right? Uh, yeah, and they, they're, they're paid better, too. And the reason why is the 5% of the tasks the machine doesn't do, which has to do with like extremely high-volume transactions, uh, dealing with your like customer complaints, opening new accounts, all this kind of other stuff, which are higher value add to the bank, are now allowed to be done by the teller. They're allowed to focus on those exclusively. They're far more productive than they were once were because the thing that just they had to do and was slow now automated and it's automated in these very tiny machines that don't take up a lot of space and so you can place those machines in far more places and open up smaller bank branches where you have two or three tellers rather than 50 um and then you hire more and more of them and banking becomes easier for people so they do more of it and that means more money is spent more tellers are required um so this virtuous cycle of you know taking away the labor intensive but not very high value add task 
made the entire system like way more productive and benefited the employees a lot too. Hmm. You mentioned uh, earlier that some of the most important research came out of U of T. Uh, can you talk a little bit about Canada's role in AI and our history there and whether, you know, are, are we taking advantage of that? It seems like it's going to be a big part of the economy going forward. Um, are we positioned to benefit from that at all? Yeah, in, in many ways, Canada has brought forth this current AI revolution. Um who is often called the godfather of AI, uh, Jeffrey Hinton, has been based out of U of T for uh, almost 30 years. And essentially, he, he moved here from the States because Canada at that time was the only place where there was adequate funding for non-military uh, AI research. Uh, and so that, that was actually a big attraction point. Um, like people who were computer scientists were leaving during like the Vietnam war and afterwards, because the only interests that the, that a lot of American grants had were for military applications. Um, and so there's, there was a lot of funding here as well and support. There's a, an organization called CIFAR, the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research that was among the first to just generally continue committed to funding AI research at a time when most of the world was like, oh, it doesn't have applications anymore. Like, it doesn't, it's not important. Uh, it's, it didn't work. It's not important. I can't, and, and especially, I can't figure out the military applications. Uh, so Canada was one place that continued supporting that. And we got a lot of big names for that. So Jeffrey Hinton developed back propagation, very important part of uh, neural networks that, that made them so uh, performant. Um, similarly, we have some other big thinkers, uh, Yashua Bengio, uh, who is at, in Montreal, uh, has done a lot of like pioneering work in the field. Uh, Facebook's head of AI, Jan LeCun, studied and trained in Canada and did a lot of work here as well and was a chair at, uh, at the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. And in Alberta, uh, there's a man named Richard Sutton who developed a, a lot of the innovations in reinforcement learning, which was a really big kind of breakthrough in AI in the 2015 to 2017 area era was that AI was beating people at go and started performing really well at video games. And that was like an early uh, headline grabber uh, in this new era. And a lot of that pioneering work was done by him for those, those models. So a lot of the big kind of names in the fields uh, are here. They're in uh, Alberta and Toronto and in Montreal their PhD students have been the ones to go and run the labs at a lot of the big tech companies, do a lot of the research there. Um, a lot of Google Brains team, for example, that has published these papers have been recruited out of Toronto and Waterloo. So we're really punching uh, above our weight as a country producing these people. Uh, the second part of your question was, are we taking advantage of it? Um, and that's, that's trickier. There was, in 2017, was announced uh, the Canadian Pan AI artificial, uh, like Pan Canada AI strategy, uh, and it, it had a lot of funding earmarked for the big labs uh, in Canada. So there's the Alberta Machine Institute, there's the Vector Institute in Toronto, and there's uh, the MILA. I forget what the acronym stands for, but in Montreal, and a lot of funding was earmarked for those three institutes to buy a lot of computing power, help researchers do a lot of stuff. 
uh, and boost Canada as like a player. Um, we also have had a lot of our kind of wealthier Canadians fund research institutes here. They're, they're really big. But whether we've gotten the international recognition or, you know, economic benefit of this yet, that's harder to tell. A lot of the researchers that we train and provide these research resources to uh, end up leaving to the States because their pay package is better. Uh, like you can, you can get a great university education here or do groundbreaking work. But if you go work in Canada, you're probably making a third of what you would make in, in Silicon Valley for the same, same seniority. Um, and so we tend to, to lose a lot of that talent and we tend not as well to be more aggressive in defending our reputation abroad. Like you don't, everyone knows Silicon Valley is the tech innovator, but you don't really, well, I go to places and people don't know that any of the stuff came out of Toronto at all. Um, and so that's, that's another disappointing factor. That, when calling back to uh, processing power, um, does does any of the success of the research in this field hinge on the development of quantum computers? Like there's a couple companies that people are really excited about, like Xanadu. And um, does that make a meaningful difference, kind of whatever way the development or success of these companies goes? Or is that just a nice to have? Uh, there's definitely a lot of niche applications right now that quantum computers would solve that are very important. Um, like quantum computing definitely changes the game for things like cryptography and encryption and stuff like that. But for most of the types of applications that we've spoken about, um, it's not really essential. And I don't know if it would, if that does more than improving traditional computing for things like generating images better or detecting fraud or things like that. Interesting. Uh, but there are certainly applications for quantum computers that are, especially from a national security perspective, there's a lot of applications of quantum computing. What about the regulatory environment up here? Are the conditions favorable in Canada? Are they more or less the same than the U.S.? What's happening with that? In some ways, the conditions are more favorable. Um because, you know, you, you do have a lot more education resources here. Um, and things are like, there, there is a lot of funding available here. And we have really generous in Canada for technical work. We have really generous tax credits. Uh, and that does help a lot in getting yourself started. Um, one of the, I think, especially in, in our, the space that Wombo is in, which is this generative space, we do run into a problem on intellectual property. Like it's, it's actually, and this is a global issue right now. There's no jurisdiction that's really settled it, but the U S is a little bit more in favor of companies innovating here is like whether I'm allowed to take other people's data and train with it. Um, like, can I go to Reddit and scrape everything and then train a model on it? Um, and when I generate an output from a model, that image that you get using dream, um, is it an image that you own? Does it have any copyright protections at all? Uh, like what is the status of an AI generated work, uh, is also a gray area. 
Uh, and so a lot of people, especially in things like marketing, are hesitant to do a lot of AI uh, generated work because if it's not theirs anymore, like if they have zero IP protections over it, it's probably not that useful. Um, and the US has set some stuff that's a little bit more favorable to allowing yourself to just use AI to do what you want. Uh, but that's also a general gray area that I think stifles adoption. So what do you think is next for the technology, the sector as a whole? Obviously, it seems to be developing very rapidly now. Where do you see it going in the next couple of years? So this, like, I, I've spoken about AI as like prediction and generative. So with the prediction stuff, so the things like what TikTok recommends and the filtering, like, those things are just getting better and better. And what will probably, what I think will happen is you'll see a lot more stuff built with that mindset through and through. Um, so if I have a product, like Spotify already kind of does this, and I expect more things like Spotify, right? Spotify tells you what music you'll probably like without you looking for it. Um, and then you, you do use that for discovery. And I think that like stuff like that for shopping or general, like a bunch of other aspects of our lives where rather than you having to do the work of discovery, like the AI discovers for you and tells you what you'll like. And you'll be like, Oh wait, you got it right. That is what I want. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is what's best for me right now. Um, could make a lot of impact in, a, in several, several verticals. Um, so that's, that's something I would, I would expect from the predictive side of it. On the generative side, like this is still a nascent field. Um, like GPT is a few years old. All of these image generation models are like less than that in terms of age. Um, and we're starting to get fairly good quality 3D and audio models too. Um, and so my, my vision is just to any kind of content that you see online to get to the point that it could be generated by an AI. Um, whether it be a meme, whether it be a song, whether it be a whole video, I, w I would love for a whole production to just be made end-to-end -end, uh, using AI. And I think that that's actually quite feasible uh, in the next few years' time in a way that's you know visually appealing, auditorily appealing, wow. etc. What would be the significance of that to you, Ryan? Well, if you could do that, so think of it this way. Um, I love film and I can't be a filmmaker because I'm not that good at any of the, the, the technical aspects of filmmaking. But if I could describe the story I wanted to see and just have it made, um, I think that's, that's the, the level of uh, creativity that humans have would be unlocked in a way that was never understood before you could communicate far better um there's a lot of ideas people have that they don't know how to put into the exactly the right words and having a general format conversation with the ai and have it give you what you're seeing in your head can help you translate what you want to other people and people are you're like chat gpt is a great first example of this because people get what they want after having a conversation with the AI and correcting it when it's not giving them what they want. Um, I want to have that done for images, music, videos, so that you can have that conversation and get what you want. And I think there's a degree of like, 
self-learning and communication with others that's enabled when you're able to actually see in the real world what you're seeing in your head. That's fascinating. So Ryan, if people want to go deeper on this, uh, is there something that you could recommend them to read a book, a paper, an essay that uh, you think would be a good place to start? Yeah, so I, I mentioned a couple of books, uh, Prediction Machines and Power of Prediction, that are really great for like the business level of AI. They're more high level. They're easier to read. Um, there's a book called Prediction Machines. Uh, sorry, uh, sorry, the other one is Architects of Intelligence by Martin Ford. And that's a series of interview with like a lot of the pioneers in the field. Um, it's pretty good because it's it's series of like short chapters about their predictions, how they got where they are, where they see things heading. And it gives you a, a sense of the diversity of the fields and, and the different approaches. Uh, and then if you want to get to like a little more technical, like probably the gold standard technical book is Deep Learning by uh, Ian Goodfellow, Yasha Bengio, and Aaron Corville. And it's more of like an explanation of what deep learning is and how to get started in it. And it's like the gold standard like textbook for it. Um, but those, those are some high level recommendations. Okay. Fantastic. This has been a great conversation. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time to help us learn about this. It's something that I didn't know much about and I feel like I know, uh, quite a bit more, but there's so much more, so much deeper we could go. So I appreciate uh, your time today, Ryan. All right. My pleasure. Thanks. Well, Sarah, you know, before we did that interview with Ryan, we were talking a little bit about um, whether AI was for real or it was kind of like a crypto boom, uh, because a lot of the people who were seem to be really into crypto are now getting really into AI. Uh, I think after that interview, I'm firmly on the side of this is not a fad. This is for real and a much bigger thing than maybe at least I was thinking of it as before we talked to Ryan. Definitely. There's a lot of smart people on my Twitter that are equating this to kind of the next big bubble, but I couldn't agree with you more. I could never really wrap my head around the crypto thing, admittedly, but this feels very real. It feels very exciting, um, a little bit worrying in some aspects, but you know, like Ryan said, it took 30 years for people to adopt electricity. So um, adoption's slow when it comes to any type of development of this nature. Uh, and I guess this is no exception. Yeah. I mean, I think what really uh, seals it for me is the fact that the biggest tech companies are the people behind this. You know, you think about it, uh, at least I wasn't thinking about it that way as really this being a project of big tech, Google, Meta, Microsoft. Yeah, that was I. But uh, it sounds like that is really where the money is coming from, the cutting edge innovation is coming from. And, you know, places like OpenAI, which have interesting corporate structures but are, are not in that same category, are getting a lot of the attention now because of ChatGPT and that sort of thing. But the research has been going on for a long time and seems to be the most well-resourced is all happening at big tech. So that, that was really interesting to hear. Definitely. And a big fact check from Ryan, too. It was interesting how he mentioned that it's really intellectual labor, which is the, 
I don't want to say easiest, but it's is really what these types of technologies are kind of built to be able to generate, right? Too, I think um, previously much of the discussion was centered around AI kind of taking over, you know, lower skilled jobs. You know, people were talking about delivery drivers, you know, fast food robots, kind of, you know, things like that. But uh, it's interesting how um, this actually spans. Uh, far broader than I think what a lot of us initially thought. Yeah, I mean, we didn't really get into the downsides, I think, of this very much. I think we were mostly just focused on the technical aspects and some of the use cases, but it would be really good to do an episode sometime in the future on who the winners and losers of all of these technological changes are going to be and what that's going to do to the economy. Because you know, if we're taking all these middle-income jobs and giving them to computers... Um, you know, it might be like bank tellers. I think the optimistic case is what Ryan presented there. Um, but, you know, I'd like to hear both sides of it before making up my mind on whether I'm positive or negative on this technological change. Yeah, there's too much excitement and, and hype around this right now, too. I, I don't think we're going to hear those conversations for a while, but uh, we'll definitely have to have uh, Ryan and, and more experts back on to, to continue to sure. unpack this space. Okay, well, should we leave it there? I think so. This has been another episode of Free Lunch. I'm Sarah Bartnika. You can follow me at Sarah Bartnika on Twitter. And I'm Taylor Scollin. You can follow me at Taylor Scollin. We'll be back with you again next week. And in the meantime, you can find us and all our other episodes by searching Free Lunch by the Peak on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us. Bye.